0: Good afternoon, good evening to all you podsters out there. We are here for our smash hit third pro- third season of the podcast of Money Talks and Bullshit Walks. Uh, we have a very fine guest and an interest with us today, Tony Ross. We'll get to Tony in a few minutes. We have a little housekeeping to do. Um, as you know, Joe Willard is here. <clears throat> Say hello, Joe. Hey, everybody. And a lot of our podsters have asked us about bombastic. Bushkin's whereabouts. And the last I heard, he was at a Motel 6 in Texas Hill Country. Uh, I think it's in Castroville, uh, and he was threatening to make a lot of citizens' arrests of anyone who did anything, including breathing. Uh, And apparently the citizens of Castroville have been threatening the same. So uh, no matter, we're here uh, at Money Talks Bullshit Walks, and we still live by Bombastic Bushkin's legal terms, his legal findings, and, of course, his I don't know, he, his his way of thinking. But we should tell everyone that we're not historians. We're not journalists. We've had some that were former journalists and some current journalists here and, and have joined us. And I can think of a bunch, you can just think of us as a, like a bunch of friends sitting in front of a Zoom camera uh, talking trash about the city that loves you back. This is a show about legends, uh, urban legends. And if the truth comes out, so be it. Joe, it, you know that this, of course, is the land of the giants, uh, as the columnist Steve Lopez wrote, uh, and I'm hoping that Tony can contribute to uh, to some of these uh, urban tales. But before we get started, I, I did uh, want to get started uh, with a quick story. Uh, we'll be moving through the 90s, um, but this story starts a little bit later. It starts in 94. Of course, Joe, the the whole idea of this is surrounding the idea and the time that it is in the year. It's football season and um, before we uh, came on uh, tony and joe and i were talking about the uh about the eagles the reason i bring all this up is in in 94 a guy named jeffrey lory bought the eagles from a, a florida car dealer named tony brayman as the story goes brayman grew up in philadelphia anyway never mind let's just say that brayman was as the legend goes, cheap, and and as the legend goes, when Mike Quick, who was one of the greatest receivers in Eagles history, retired, uh, Brayman presented him with a golf bag. Uh, The story goes there was nothing in the golf bag, but that's just a story. He finally sold the team to uh, Jeffrey Lurie and, and and went back to selling cars in Florida. Uh, I'm not sure if the dealerships are still there, but that's what he did. And of course, when Laurie bought the uh, Eagles, he fairly quickly uh, decided to make an announcement of his need for a new stadium, uh, a state-of-the-art stadium. And he wanted to move the Eagles out of Veterans Stadium. And, well, the vet, as it was known, was perhaps the worst professional sports venue in the country. Then he decided the only way he was really going to get that, and Tony, you can probably add something to this a little later was uh, to get the money from the state to build it because God forbid he should put up a dime Uh, but he used (laughs) his leverage uh, uh, with the veiled threat of moving the Eagles uh, out of Philadelphia and so we'll talk about that a a little later but really what I want to talk about for a moment is jurisprudence criminal justice and the vet most of you might remember the sports scene in the 90s uh, uh, it was it was rough at the vet, I think, um, and what we had during the Eagles season was a bunch of people who absolutely got trashed before they walked into the stadium, and before there was a kickoff, there was at least two fights, and um, the, the information I saw was that there was a, a flare gun uh, that was shot off uh, from the 700 level, and... Um, that that was the end. Uh, nobody got hurt, from what I know. Uh, but prior to that, there was usually had fifty or sixty arrests. Um, a guy by the name of Seamus McCafferty, who at the time was a municipal court judge, um, saw all this and he went to somebody in the Eagles organization and presented them with what I think was one of the most brilliant ideas in Philadelphia. It was called Eagles Court. And what uh, the way that was supposed to work was when the police got into a situation where they had to take somebody and they will say into custody, uh, they brought him down to the bowels of the vet, and McCafferty uh, basically uh, ran the court, and and the crimes that were really that were charged were called, and I think that everybody here will like it, quality of life crimes and so and so so the, the, and most of the uh most of the defendants came of course from the 700 level of that McCafferty was the inventor but at the time uh, he was also as I understand it a season ticket holder and I believe he was a retired either captain or district commander from the Philadelphia police force so he proposed the Eagles Court because he knew, and everybody else who had any kind of a brain, knew that something had to do, be done. He went to someone in the Eagles uh, hierarchy, and he asked for a meeting with Lori, Jeffrey Lawyer, who was, as I said, the owner, and he proposed the Eagles Court. And he would propose that the people that were boisterous and out of hand, starting fights, would be brought down by the police to the basement of the vet, and he would conduct a trial. Usually, these trials occurred after the game, so the judge could make sure he saw the whole game. You know, court can't start without a judge, so they, just, they can come in whenever they want. He met with Lori, and Lori agreed uh, to do this. I, I may be wrong, but I think the city at that time owned the vet. So the city got involved and somebody told that uh, they they needed somebody to clean up the the, uh, details and put it all in place. So they left it to a man named Councilman Jim Oh, And and Kenny put the deal together but that just shows like uh, Don DeLillo, one of the great authors in the world, in the end everything is attached. So, with that, I leave you and I welcome Tony and Joe. Can you kick us off so that Tony doesn't think I'm completely out of my mind? Well, he
1: may think that, and that's for sure, and all, but thank you. Um, Tony is a lifelong Eagles fan and could weigh heavily upon a lot of good stories about that, and all. Tony, before I introduce you, any comments
2: about the Lurie deal there? The Lurie deal was so interesting because it really involved not only Philadelphia, but Pittsburgh. So there were two stadiums in Philadelphia, one for the Eagles and one for the, uh, the Phillies. And then in Pittsburgh, there were one for the Pittsburgh Pirates and one for the Steelers. And the funny thing about it was that the four stadiums cost about a billion dollars, but they had to put an extra billion dollars in to buy them the votes. To get it passed through the legislature, <laughs> so it ended up costing us two billion dollars. It only cost a billion.
1: <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> Stuff that
2: doesn't get. Well, in the paper. I, you know, I can't really fault the people who were not from Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. They were saying, "Wait a minute, you just send all that money to Philadelphia and Pittsburgh to build stadiums in their communities. Well, get, give me something." So, for example, in Harrisburg, we have the uh, or Hershey, excuse me. They have. That's how they got the uh, the Hershey
1: Park Center. Hershey Stadium,
2: yeah, yeah. They they got
1: their stadium, too. So, POTSTERS, Tony Ross and I go way back. Tony, I first met him when he was the public policy director for United Way of Pennsylvania and eventually became the president for the United Way of Pennsylvania. And I was doing public policy work at the United Way here in Philadelphia. And we were working together a lot on advocating for child care, for senior citizens, for low-income American working class folks staying in the workforce and all. And we invited Tony on because he's got a lot of history, particularly about what's going on in Harrisburg. And I, I think the overall theme for tonight is, you know, what was Harrisburg like from his perspective and what can he share with us? Because he knows we're talking about the 1990s right now. Tony, let's start off. We know you went to... Westtown High School, and the only thing Pete and I know about Westtown is that we dropped our kids off during summertime for a soccer camp there, and two Philly guys, we would go out there, drop our kids off, and we look at Westtown and say, oh my God, we are not in Kansas anymore. Yes, it is Quaker,
2: yes. So tell us
1: about that. What was your experience like that, and eventually, how did you get to
2: Harrisburg? Well, eventually, you know, really, Westtown ties into how I got to Harrisburg. Uh, you may know now Senator Tony Williams, State Representative Tony Williams, and he came to Franklin and Marshall, a Black alumni event at Franklin and Marshall, and I was playing basketball with a bunch of students, and I said, well, why not we go over to this event and meet these alumni who felt, who took enough time to come and meet us, and we, we can at least meet them, and when I met uh, Senator Williams, I, made it, I we hit it off. We found out his name is Tony. Uh, my name's Tony. He went to Westtown. I went to Westtown. Well, I, of- I didn't know that uh, Senator Williams went to Westtown. Yes, he did. Okay. The class of 1975. In the course of us you know, getting to know each other at, the, at that time, he said, we have a legislative program up in Harrisburg. Do you want it? And It was like cost like it was like was $3,000 they paid paid us. So I, of course, said, yes, I'll take that. So from 1989 to 1990, I was his uh, summer intern. And what I would tell you about that, Joe, is, and I tell this to young people who are often looking at internships and other types of work, that is what you want to do. You want to work with a freshman member because you really find out whether or not you can like 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 the work. So for example, I was writing his press releases because he didn't have anybody else to write press releases for. Him. I was going to meetings for him because he didn't have anybody in Harrisburg who could but, go to
1: meetings. so, so you you're what 21 22 year old kid yes. uh, out of Southeast PA you're writing press secretary press releases for a new Congress or a new state representative
0: right that's right. Uh, Just to throw that in, uh, when I was about your age, I was an intern for uh, Bill Green in in Washington. Bill Gray, Uh, Bill Gray. No, no, no. I worked for Gray in his first term. But I I was an intern for Green in one. did know that. Okay. There you go. I got a lot of stuff that Joe you don't just don't know about. <laughs> but, but but I I was an intern. The, the 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 United States Congress has a much formal, more formal program uh, than the Pennsylvania House, I'm sure. So I wasn't writing press releases. Uh, I was getting to walk over to Congress uh, with with a duffel bag or with a, a briefcase and hand it to green but you know and i think tony would agree uh or Eve just pointed it out it it's it's a learning process that comes on quickly and some of us get cynical uh i wouldn't know who that was but some of us all of us learn government in a very very up close way
2: exactly so uh, in uh, 1991 i graduated from college and uh, I was working at a few odd jobs. And then eventually uh, Representative Williams at the time f- facilitated me getting a job in a Democratic Information Office. So that's what's how I that? got there.
1: You know, what's that? Well, what
2: you have to do for them? Well, well it's really a, a press office. The Information Office is really the press office. And it's very interesting, Joe. You'll, you'll like this. You're, you're assigned about 10 representatives. So I had 10 reps that I had to write for. And so I, mostly I, had, I got hired, I believe, because I was from the Philadelphia area. And they had nobody in the office from the Philadelphia area. So they didn't know how to write. The, the Philadelphia members were really pissed off with the office because the, the writers didn't write. But then they got me involved. And then I couldn't know how to write for black Philadelphians. I knew how to write for white Philadelphians. So they said, oh, he's great. So that's how I got the job. Well, let me
0: let me ask you this, and I was going to ask this, um, so your introduction is that you're you're working in in the Democratic, and we'll call it the press office. And there's uh, members uh, that are not happy because people can't uh, do what they want to do. What was your impression, and you've kind of hinted at it. What was your impression of the relationship with the Democratic? Uh, leadership and the Democrats within the caucus among, from Philadelphia for the rest of the state? What, back then, I guess that was the early 90s, late right. 80s.
2: Well, to give you an example, I think where we're going to go is what we really want to talk about. Well, when I first got to Harrisburg, I would say that the Democratic caucus was pretty well united. We had a really diverse leadership team. Uh, I remember when I was uh, up there in '89 and '90 as a young intern. Irvis Leroy Irvis was the black speaker of the house from Pittsburgh. Uh, the leader right. was Jim Mandarino from Westmoreland County. My father would call him Mandarino. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. You know a big man. I have a, yes. a funny story about him. So as a as an intern, we had to go and meet the leadership of each of each caucus. So I went through it. I met O'Donnell. I met Deweese, I met Alec Kukovic, all of them. And then finally you go and meet the Speaker of the House, Jim Mandarino, sitting behind a big desk, and it looked like I was in, uh, uh, in the uh, Godfather movie. And I, was, and I walked out and Tony Williams said to me, he said, well, what did you think of the meeting? I said, he, don't screw with that guy. That's what I can tell you about him. Don't screw with him. And that was so, so true of, of Speaker Mandarino. So that was sort of the uh, lineup back then and then of course and then it kind of broke up in 92 we can talk about that a little bit more but yeah. uh but for a while it was good we had max pievsky who was the appropriations <laughs> chairman right and then of course he retired and then dwight took his place
0: what was it like then as you're you're telling me that everybody was sort of getting along to some degree and at least in the democratic caucus so how did that change
2: over time well, it's funny. I learned a lot. I, let me tell you, that in those two years in that leadership election, I learned a lot. What happened was, it's what happens what intersects with uh, personal politics and the politics of the caucus. So in uh, 1990, Jim Mandarino died. And uh, at the time, Bob, met, Bob, met, uh, Bob O'Donnell was the majority leader. Right. And, and then he moved up to speaker. And he often right. says he should have stayed majority leader. He, should have, he could have made somebody else the Speaker. And he could have stayed Majority Leader. But, that, you know, if you don't, what do know anything about politics, that's not the way it's perceived. So he moved up to Speaker. DeWeese moved up to Majority Leader. And it was great. So then, as we get to 92, coming to 92, uh, O'Donnell announces that it's his last term in in the House. So 92 to 94 would be his last term because he was going to run for governor. And one of the things I learned was you never – ever chip your hand and that was a bad mistake for O'Donnell because that meant that gave Deweese and other people to circle and to begin to look at how they could supp- supplant him because I think O'Donnell for his I think for his part he did some things that pissed off members of the caucus so he was talking about there was a incident with um perks and pl- perks and you know and running uh, cars and stuff like that. So he was trying to rein it in, make them, make them go to the state the state fleet. And um, they were not happy with it. What happened was they got to the election and I'll never forget this. Somebody told me there's a running joke in Harrisburg used to be, those of us could count to 51, but not 101, which <laughs> meant, he, he, I've never seen, he is one of the best in caucus election politicians I've ever seen.
0: Mm.
2: So what he did was he collect, he created an alliance with uh, himself, Mike Bion, and Dwight Evans, and they deposed Bob O'Donnell. And the reason that the week that, o, that, that Evans went that way is because Evans was running for governor, and so was O'Donnell was running for governor. So what happens is he figures, well, he said he's leaving anyway, so I'm going to cut him and then I'll, I'll solidify my base in the, in the caucus, and uh, it helps me run for my run for governor. I feel pretty
0: certain, and I guess you can confirm
2: it, that
0: prior to that break, uh, their legislative districts, if they weren't directly next to each other, they were both in the Northwest, and yes. they must have had some sort of a, a pretty decent relationship. Uh, so that must have been a, a fairly big surprise, or did O'Donnell know that going in? No, I
2: think, I think he was surprised by it because they, I don't think he took Dwight seriously. And Dwight right. is a very serious guy. So if he was going to run, he, he was going to run. So I think, I think it was more Bob uh, was, was kind of sleeping at the wheel on that.
0: So just to just to uh, remind you, podsters out there, uh, Dwight Evans is now, I think, a three or four term congressman uh, right. from uh, from the northwest section of the city. Who knows what will happen with redistricting? But it, it, it's, as I said, people don't just grow out of the weeds, fully grown. Uh, they come from somewhere. And uh, this is a Representative uh, Evans is, is a perfect example.
2: And the problem for Representative Evans and really the leadership team of this leadership team was that it it split the caucus, the the Philadelphia delegation along racial lines. So a lot of the white state representatives supported O'Donnell, the blacks supported uh, Evans, and they never really could get together on a lot of major issues for a long time afterwards.
1: Yeah, we covered some, just some internal elections here in Philly and the Blackwell versus street campaign. The mayor, I mean, you just saw lines breaking up left and right. Northwest Philly went against West Philly, one against North Philly. And there was a, not against, right. but there was certainly tension there and there was a battle there between them.
0: Oh yeah, there, there, there was a big, there was a big uh, fissure between uh, the West Philly and North Billy uh, Black Leadership and the Northwest Group, which I believe Bill Gray and Marion Tasco sort of uh, were the the two keynote or I guess not famous, but people that were known to lead in that area.
1: And there was some speculation that that's how Rendell became mayor of Philadelphia, because there was the African-American community was divided. And then, you know, he cut his deal with John Street. And so he was able to really grab hold of Philadelphia's politics and be the leader, you know, for those eight years that he was there. Yes, Tony, let, let, let me switch a little bit. As a staff person, tell us your role. Who did you work for and
2: how influential as a staff person? Well, there's, all sorts of staff, as people can imagine, there are, there are writers, there are researchers, there's committee directors. So, I mean, anything you can, there. there's an actual TV station there in the, in the, in the house that creates TV shows for people. So it's it's really a, a, almost like a, a city into itself a little bit. So for me, I worked for, as I said, in the Democratic Information Office, where I had 10 representatives so it was funny. I had people like Buckowitz and McGeehan. And then I had, on the other side, I had people like Harold James and Leanna Washington. So you could imagine what kind of a day I would have when I come home from work after, <laughs> after a day like that. It was fun. And then I worked for the Black Caucus next as a research analyst. And then third, I worked for Representative Andrew Karn, uh, who is from North Philadelphia. North Philadelphia. Yeah. And uh, I worked as a, as his committee director.
1: Because it, yeah, he, did he have a good committee chair
2: position at that time? No, they, no, no. He, a, Andrew. Must Andrew must have been later. So, yeah. You see, it was so funny, but he was supposed to get a committee and there was some, some kind mm-hmm. of uh, intra, intra-party politics. So Andrew was the type of person, he really didn't care. So they made a committee of committees. And so, he, but it was good because we turned it into a democratic policy committee. And we had oh, really? a of issues to work on. I think the core state bank issue was one we worked on. Stadiums was another one we worked on. So we worked on a lot of uh, important issues. So, we, so we, 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 we took lemons and made lemonade. Back then,
0: um, uh, Rendell was sort of really coming into the picture. Uh, I know that, uh, I believe he r- ran against uh, good in the primary of 87, and that really upset, I'll just say the Black Caucus, but the Black community, uh, because they, first of all, they didn't like that, and second of all, I think he made, or at least they thought he made a pretty overt promise that he wouldn't do that, and he got his head kicked in, as as I recall. Right, right. But I guess he learned his lesson, and he ran again, uh, or, or maybe he was out of office and ran for governor and lost, and right. then he ran for mayor. What were your impressions of, of Randell, I guess, back in 87 and then how he sort of uh, grew in and became a more mature candidate uh, for mayor?
2: Well, they call him Fast Eddie. <laughs> He's funny. You know, I've never seen a guy a more blessed political life than his at the time. I mean, when he ran in, uh, I guess it was 91, and Ranger. he ran, He was running against Frank Rizzo. And, I, and if you recall, as you both recall, People there were some people saying we don't know who's gonna win that race. And here in, in, in the middle of uh, August, a 70-year-old overweight man drops dead and uh he la- allows Rendell to go on and win the election. So he, he's a plus person, but he, he worked hard. I think when he came into office, I think he was ready when he I think if he had gotten in 87, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been as good. But with, by ninety-one he was ready. Do you do you think
0: um him Rendell, being the district attorney for two terms, that he he had a better feel for things uh, as a, I'll call it, the chief executive uh, as to how to run the city, as opposed to let's just say a councilman who uh, just never had
2: that executive. I, I think so. Being in being in a, a DA was extremely helpful to him. I think also there's no more political person than Ed Rendell. So, I mean, there is no person I've ever seen would campaign the way he campaigns um, in the city. And then, of course, when he went on for governor, I mean, you're not going to out campaign him. So right. I think that helped him as well, that he uh, he had an understanding of uh, politics and people uh, and how people mobilizing public support. So he was a very, very effective mayor. Well,
0: you know, you just talked about how Deweese could count to 51, but maybe not 101. <laughs> I, I think Rendell early on learned that he had to count to nine. The president of city council, I think John Street had just been elected, and I don't think that there could be any two different personalities in the world than John Street and Edward Rendell. So... I guess, uh, I don't know if you know or I'll, I'll ask you, they were not uh, at all friendly during his early years.
2: Is is, is is that a correct perception? I would agree with that, but I think that they came to understand politics is the heart of the possible, and, and if it was in Streets' interest and if it was in Rendell's interest, they would work together on something. If it was something that was not in their interest, they did not, so I think they just it was a very practical relationship. It's very practical.
0: When you saw that up close, we kind of talked about it here on the podcast, but I think you were probably either in the room or close to the room. And what they did with, with Pika, and I think O'Donnell was in the middle of that right, too. Right, right, right. Would be something that they, they drew them together.
2: Right. Well, because it again, it, it was it suited all their interests because the city was in bad, very bad fiscal trouble and that both O'Donnell, uh, Street, Rendell, um, and the Republicans as well, uh, you know, they got together and they crafted a very good piece of legislation that really stands to test the time, still standing today.
0: Right, Um, so now we're we're in Harrisburg and you've been there and we've talked a lot about the House, but um, can you paint a picture of your impressions of Vince Fumo and if they changed, if they were reinforced, he did a lot of heavy lifting for the city of Philadelphia. There's no yes. doubt about
2: that. It's interesting because the House and the Senate, they are two different animals and they really keep separate. But, I, you know, you kind of hear what goes on in the Senate. Um, the, the Democratic caucus in the Senate was really run by Senator Fumo. The Democratic leader was Senator Robert Mello from Scranton area. And he was a good guy but uh, everybody knew the power was with FUMO who made cut budget deals and whatnot. So I would say that, you know, it really was dependent upon what F- FUMO wanted and FUMO did a lot of work with Governor Casey.
1: So Tony, as a staff person, did, did staff people have to like walk
2: on eggshells when, you're, when the
1: democratic house is dealing with the democratic Senate on budget issues or, oh, yes.
2: or other issues? I didn't have a lot to do with it, but uh, yes. Yeah, it it got really heated sometimes in those uh, negotiations because unlike today, the Democrats were actually in charge. They were the majority party. I think at one time, I think in the first, in 90, they were both parties uh, in the Senate and the House were Democratic. So, and they had Democratic governors. So it got a little bit dicey sometimes.
1: Is there a status difference between a Senate staffer and a House staffer?
2: Hmm, that's interesting. I I would say no at the end because I I, I think at the end we we all work at the pleasure of the sen of the senator or the representative. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on who you work for, in terms of what, what your experience is like.
1: Talk about a time with the, the Black Caucus. What
2: were the issues there? Who were the leaders there that you, you okay. worked with? Vincent Hughes, who was a state representative who is now a state senator and now the appropriations chairman in the Senate, was the Black Caucus chairman. And then after his term was done, uh, we had Representative Harold James of South Philadelphia.
0: He was, he was also a former
1: cop. Am I wrong? Yes, he was. And, and what type of work did staffers have to do
2: there? I mean, you know, talk about the issues themselves. Well, they would look up a lot of legislation. They would develop legislation for the members. That that was basically it. You know, they would work on press releases. Also, in Philadelphia, a lot of Philadelphia reps in in Harrisburg or the senators in Harrisburg really focused their efforts back on Philadelphia. So a lot of their work was focused on Philadelphia. So there was a lot of folks, we often went back and worked on different things in the district with the district staff. So... There might be a community fair, a a senior fair, you know, anything like that.
1: So I got to ask you this, you know, as an advocate, uh, we're told to, if you want to influence legislation, you can give a staff person one page fact sheet, maybe Mm. two. But if you want a legislator to understand it, you give the person a bullet point, maybe two bullet points, Mm. but don't give them substance. And so- (laughs)
2: Yeah. <laughs> how, how true is that? Is that accurate? It depends on the person. Mm-hmm. Some people, like Kathy Mandarino, who is the daughter of uh, Jim Mandarino, who actually represented Philadelphia, and he represented yes. Moreland County. She was a, a a policy wonk, so she wanted all the really good information. And now there's some other representatives who shall remain nameless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You might give them one, one bullet point. I would agree with that. Thank you. <laughs> that
1: was always the big debate, you know. Do you give them like a five to ten page policy brief, or do you give them a one page, couple bullets, and that's it? Because they don't read these things. Do they even read those fact sheets?
2: But I think you make a very good point, Joe. That, and really, it is the, the the staff people that you go to really advocate. You, yeah. I mean, you can speak to the representative or the senator, but really, it's the the staff people. Because, you know, as you could imagine, if you're a representative or a senator, you have hundreds, maybe thousands of issues running across your desk, and they're going to go back to their, their, their staff and ask them, you know, how, what, what's what, you know, and what's, what, how to deal with things, except for maybe the one or two that they're really uh, interested in and working on.
0: Mm-hmm. So when uh, Rendell was first elected mayor, uh, and we kind of touched on their their uh, the city's just total bankruptcy or near bankruptcy, exactly. and, and he couldn't really, but he really didn't have money to to fix things in every uh, sleight of hand that. The budget could do had already been done. So when Rangel went to to Harrisburg, what was your perception of his uh, relationship? I guess it was with Governor Casey, if they had
2: one. How can I say this? It it was cordial at at the time, and this is very important to remember. uh, Governor Casey had come off of the 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 heart issue. Right. where he almost died and he only had two years left. I think his uh, last year was uh, Rendell's first year. Most of his work in Harrisburg occurred under the Ridge administration as opposed to the governor, as opposed to Governor Casey's administration. So how did he get along with uh, Ridge? Again, they are it's the art of politics. So when when things suited both of them were, were well, they worked together. and If they went against it, then they opposed. So the one issue that we talked about earlier, that they both was in both of their interests was the this, the stadium issue. And the one where I, I always remember them had a bit of a disagreement was the uh, welfare reform, where right. Governor Rich was on one side and Rendell was on the other side. I think Rendell was always uh, viewed, especially in the second term uh, after 94, uh, people in Harrisburg viewed him kind of uh, warily because people f- figured he was going to run for governor,
0: and of course he did. So if people, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but we're, while we're talking about Rendell, he was almost considered like a mini Bill Clinton in terms of his uh, his legal, uh, his perception about his policies. A lot of people think he he used a lot of Rendell uh, Clinton's. Talking points or legislative action, and he was uh, he was put in there uh, in the national spotlight uh, as sort of a uh, this is what, how you can succeed in a, a pretty conservative state, probably the most Pennsylvania's probably the most conservative state on the, uh, in the Middle Atlantic.
2: I I can't imagine any state being more conservative. Governor Rendell, I mean Governor Mayor Rendell at the time, he was very pragmatic, so. He he took some of the positions that were actually quite conservative, and now I bet you if he was if he was mayor right now he'd do very, very liberal type things. So I think he he didn't really care about uh, these type of uh, labels, conservative or liberal. It was like what needs to be done and what's the best way to get it done. So. I would say he was more pragmatic than anything.
0: You were talking about what staffers do and don't do, and 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 try and provide information. I don't know if you got to work with him, uh, but I'm sure you observed him. Maybe one of the greatest staffers of all time was
2: David L. Cohen. In Harrisburg, the the joke would be call David because they said (laughs) Riddell would be all over the place. He'd tell you yes, and you know, well, he told me yes. Well. Didn't you know he ain't gonna do that for you, so eventually we just learned to call David right and and David,
0: uh, I think we can all agree, knew how to get things done. and I, I also think what you just said that Rendell would be all over the place. I think he was probably the only person uh, that could keep Rendell on the rails. Yes. Um, so uh, I guess he was the great the greatest staff member.
2: Yes. In fact, that was one of the things that really kind of bothered people was when he became governor, that he didn't bring uh, David. David didn't, or David didn't want to come, obviously, because he was at right. Comcast at the time. Right. But
0: uh,
2: he, people were saying, oh, man, where's David at when we need him?
0: <laughs>
1: Bernie, did, did, um, did you as a staffer get caught in any of those fights between like uh, Philadelphia people versus the rural Democrats
2: versus Pittsburgh? Did you get stuck in any of those fights? No, not really, because, again, I think most of the Philadelphia people tended to focus most mostly on Philadelphia issues mm-hmm. and maintain themselves. For example, most most politicians in Harrisburg who are Philadelphia-based, they're war leaders. So you guys know who war leaders are. Oh yes. So they're concerned about who's getting elected as committee people, Who's who's up for the next election, judicial or mayoral or district attorney, so I mean it was really it was really like a mini miniature of Philadelphia almost really to me, and <laughs> the Black Caucus was the same because the Black Caucus was like at the time I think it was like twenty blacks from Philadelphia and maybe two uh, Representative Joe Preston, Representative Bill Robinson were the only two people from Pittsburgh, and then the, then they did eventually elect uh, Representative Thaddeus Kirkland, who's now in, down in Ch- Chester. He was yeah. not the mayor, but he was the state representative for like a long time, um, and now we actually have Latinos more now. Um, before there was always one Latino legislator. Um, there was Ben uh, Ben Ramos. Ben Ramos, but Acosta was before him. Ralph Acosta. Ralph Acosta, and now it's Angel Cruz. But now <laughs> we that, they have gotten more Latino representation. So the representative in uh, Allentown—I mean, not Allentown, Reading is uh, with him and there's a few other. I think there's another gentleman from Philadelphia, I believe, who's a Latino as well. So they got like three or four Latino representatives. So that's a, that's someone, that's a big difference. They, mm-hmm. there are um, more uh, black legislators in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So from Delaware I County, know. and uh, I think there's a, some in Just- Chester County. And I think there might be one or two in Montgomery County. I'm not sure. But um, needless to say, they're they're they're, it's, they're different. They're different than Philadelphia-based legislators. Did, did racial issues bubble up in the nineties? Early nineties. I think uh, the one that most 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 comes to mind is the welfare reform mm-hmm. with uh, Governor Rich and uh, I think Dave Richardson, you know, one of the favorite legislators, mm-hmm. non, uh he th- There were some. They thought that there was some racial input into that into that legislation. Um, so he fought that very. Very a long time before he passed. Yes,
0: and, and you can tell me better that there was some relationships between the Democratic caucus and legislators and the Republican uh, legislators. And, and uh, I'm only looking at it from a distance. Do you think that, that is, that's sort of been torn apart? Or do you think that there's more there than we're not seeing?
2: I'm, I'm sure there's probably some there but it's, it's much more partisan than it was when I was there. I mean, we all went out to dinner or, or went out after session day with Republican staff. Some of my best friends were the Ridge administration. I went. I, those are good guys. I, I came to Philadelphia with the Rich people and we went around to all the different places they were gonna go on the uh, Governor Ridge's tour. To get to buy votes for the stadium. Nowadays, it's harder because I think you know we had uh, conservative Democrats le- elected. Now those people from West Morning County, from Beaver County, they're gone. They're all Republicans now. So I think that's what the problem is. That they're those are those people were Casey Democrats and now they're Republicans.
0: Do you see that there there is any chance that that sort of at least friendship or camaraderie between the two parties? Uh, can get back together at least to close to where people would go out to to have lunch with each other.
2: Yeah, I, I think there is to going on now, but I think the question is how do we get that to translate to how do we take that to the floor of the House or the Senate and work on things, or in a, in a committee room and work on things together to get things done. And I think they they party or they get together socially afterwards, but then once the lights come on. Uh, after the election, I mean, after the election, they're just oh, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. So I think that's the problem. I think it can be solved. I think it's going to take more, more, more people like us getting involved with, with programs like you're having. I think they're going to have to have people from younger people get involved and take uh take seats over. Maybe that'll be a way of doing it. I think it's possible. Yeah, we're coming up toward nine
1: o'clock. And Tony, we would love to have you come back when Rendell is governor. Governor, yes. In the, the <laughs> 2000s, but we're sticking Oh, to I that. could
0: tell all day long about that. Well, you'll get your chance. Um, just two quick notes uh, about people that we were talking about. Actually, three. I think everybody out there knows that Vince Fumo went to jail, but I ought to tell you posters out there in case you don't know, Seamus McCafferty also went to jail, and so did uh, Bill DeWeese. So, uh, money talks. My about Vion, my Vion too. My Vion too. Vion went to jail too. So, you know, it, it, it all pops up. Uh, I, I will ask you about term limits. Do you think there should be term limits for the House and Senate?
2: I think they're probably a good idea. But I think that if you think about it, back then we had the, uh, the pay raise scandals, you might remember. And a lot of folks got turned out of office. But all the Philadelphians' cat returned to office, so it was right. good for the city of Philadelphia because all their people had seniority. I, well, you know, right. I, there's good and bad to t- t- term
0: limits. Yeah, next time we'll talk about the midnight pay raises, gambling, and uh, and and uh, what was the what was the third? The pay raises, I think, were first. Uh, yeah, okay. And then there was gambling. And I think that was at the time that the budget needed to be balanced. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that was a few more. Right. Right. So we'll talk about that. I, I, I'd like to hear your, your perceptions and your thoughts on that. Cause it sounds like you were right there.
1: Yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, Tony, thank you very much for your time thank you. tonight. Let's get together. Thanks. Let's get you back on the show. We'll edit this and get it out in a couple of weeks and uh we'll, we'll bring it back really appreciate all it all right thank
2: you thank you guys